Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church Podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel and Evangelism Sermon Series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Our Lord and our God, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we do thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for the great privilege and opportunity that you've given us tonight to come and to hear your word. We pray, God, that you would give us listening ears. We pray, God, that you would give us understanding minds and receiving hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to to grasp and apply your word. And I decrease, God. That you may increase, I become less, God, so that you can become more. I pray, Lord, that you would move me out of the way tonight, and that you would be glorified in all that we do. Lord, help your people not to see me or, or hear me, but see and hear you. Let me simply be one who is pointing the way to the Savior, to the Master. We pray, God, that you would be glorified in all that we do. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, we are in the, the fourth part of our series on the gospel and evangelism. And I, I just want to say real quick that I've been getting a, a lot of encouraging feedback. And that does encourage me when I hear people say, I'm, I'm really grasping just how we've been putting together that, that running kind of understanding of the gospel. That's been a blessing to me. Or I had an, another individual yesterday text me and say, I've heard, I've heard a lot of ministers share the gospel and, and they seem to leave out bad news. And good news is not really good news unless there's some kind of bad news, right? Or you can't at least appreciate the good news until you really understand the bad news. Maybe that's said better. So I want to thank you for the encouragement. And the encouraging thing is we're just getting started. We're just getting started. So tonight, um, as we begin, we, I want to go over real quick our working understanding of the gospel. So we've learned so far that God is holy. Those of you who go to the youth as well, please pay very attention because my wife is going over this every, every time she meets with you guys. But God is holy. He's the creator of the universe and he is the, the judge of man. Man was created in God's image, made perfect. God gave a command to expand his glory, to worship him and to obey him. Man rebelled and disobeyed that command, bringing death to all humanity. We have become depraved now in our minds, our wills, and our desires because of sin. And we have become separated from our holy God or from holy God. And his wrath is upon us or upon sinful humanity because of sin. But here's the good news from last week, right? But thanks be to God. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus, who was fully man and fully God, who faced every temptation of man, but perfectly obeyed the law of God. Again, Jesus was fully God and displayed this truth in words, miracles, forgiveness, and ultimately by rising from the dead. Jesus died in the place of those who deserved punishment, becoming a substitute for them, taking on the punishment that they deserve. Jesus rose from the dead, conquering finally sin, death, and the grave. Now, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. You don't have to memorize that. If you like that, then at least try to understand the point of all of that. You might get a word wrong. You don't need to memorize that. You need to understand and memorize the point, right? The holiness of God, 
the sinfulness of man, the redeeming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the question now. Now what? So the gospel has been given. Let's say that you're, you're sharing the gospel with an individual one-on-one. What do you do now? What's the next step? Let me encourage you tonight. The next step, and, and if you're taking notes, you should write this down. The next step is not up to you. The next step is not up to you. I say that with two things in mind. That is, whether you're presenting the gospel or whether the gospel is being presented to you, here's what you need to understand. The response is out of your control. I say that as a reformed pastor, (laughs) and you'll understand why. Why would I say that it is out of your control? You've gone through, through this entire process of explaining God, the bad news, the good news, and now you're saying... That's it. Nothing else for you to do. Your part is done. And yeah, in a way, your part is done. And here's why. After you've explained this gospel, after you've explained the bad news, good news, only thing left is a response. And you have no control over that response. Right? You have absolutely no control over that response. And and this is encouraging even if you're not a reformed uh, believer. Even if you're just a believer. You can't make someone be saved. After you give them the gospel, it's out of your hands. And for the person who's receiving the gospel, it's also, whether they want to acknowledge this or not, it's also out of their hands. You can't cry enough tears. You can't pull out enough of your hairs. You can't even threaten the person enough with eternal judgment. It's just not going to work. It's out of your control. How they respond to the gospel is out of your control. And listen, that should cause great relief for you. Now, although you may be so passionate about wanting to see them saved, ultimately, that choice is out of your hands. And thank God that choice is out of your hands. Because if the choice was in your hands, then, my God, you should not be able to sleep tonight. But because God is sovereign, meaning God is in complete control, and you're not, that's what should cause you to rest your head on your pillow at night knowing that, listen, God is God and I'm not. Right? Ultimately, when you're done sharing the gospel, it's God who is either drawing that person to himself or not drawing that person to himself. And ultimately, that decision and that drawing is going to have to be left and trusted into the hands of God, whether you like it or not. How many times have I been in the marketplace? How many times have I been on Chester Avenue and so forth and so on? And I've pleaded and I've been so passionate and I've wanted to get this person. If I could shake truth into them, I would. It's just not on me, though. And thank God it's not on me. So therefore, when I share the gospel, I trust that God is ultimately going to be in control of whether or not he draws that person to himself or does not draw that person to himself. My responsibility is to do what? Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. 
So you should not be afraid of, well, what if they don't believe? That's not the point. Here's what you should be, you should be focused on, preaching the gospel and letting God be the one who determines who will believe and who will not believe. Amen? Again, the same is true if the gospel is being presented to you. And let me say to you, if the gospel has not been presented to you, although you may be compelled to respond in some kind of way, whatever compulsion you feel to respond Whatever urgency you you feel at that particular moment is ultimately because the Holy Spirit is working inside of your heart. So you you may feel this, this, my mom likes to say, tugging. (laughs) You may feel this tugging. You may feel this compulsion. You may feel this kind of urgency on the inside of you. It's not you. It's the Holy Spirit in you, working in you, drawing you near. And how is he doing that? He should be doing that because you feel the sense of urgency when you hear bad news. And then also you hear good news and you find out that you're on the side of the bad news and that you need to be on the side of the good news. That's what cause the sense of urgency. That's what cause a sense of I, I need to be on that side. And in doing so, or if you do so, that's a work of the Holy Spirit, because without it, there will be no compulsion. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, there will, no, there will be no sense of urgency. There will be no sense of desire. There will only be complacency. There will only be indifference. So thank God that the work of salvation is ultimately in the hands of God. Amen? So when we're sharing the gospel, trust that when it comes to <clears throat> what's next... That it's in God's hands. Now, now here's, here's the, the, the appropriate question. What does come next? So I've shared the good news. I, I've shared the bad news. Now, what does come next? Peter was preaching the gospel in the book of Acts. And the people became so overwhelmed by their guilt and their shame because Peter had preached a full exposition of the Old Testament into Jesus Christ, into his life, death, and resurrection, and then points the blame at those people and say, you did this. And their response to Peter was, Acts chapter 2, verse number 37. Let's go there. So you can see the response. I'm actually supposed to slow down and I'm going faster. Acts two thirty-seven. Here's the response. This is the appropriate response when the gospel has been delivered. Here's what they say. Here's what they ask. And the response is really a question. Here it is. Are you there? Acts 2.37. Brothers, speaking to Peter and the apostles who were preaching, what shall we do? What a great response that is. Acts 2.37. What a great response that is. Did I get that right or am I... Great, now you're all going to make me a liar right now. Let me see. (laughs) Is it 237 or 337? Oh, see? You should know your Bibles. Anyways. (laughs) Brothers, what shall we do? That's a great response. That, That is an appropriate response when the gospel has been delivered. They're feeling a great sense of desperation, a great sense of urgency, and they ask the right question. What are we supposed to do now? And the answer that Peter gave the people that day is the same answer that we are to give people when they ask the same question when God is drawing them to himself. And here's, here's the question. 
Now listen, only sheep are going to ask such a question. Goats won't ask this question. Goats will walk away. The sheep ask this question, and here's the answer. Repent, 238, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, what's the response when they say, what should we do? The response is, repent. Tonight, we are going to discuss how to be saved. So, we've talked about God. We've talked about man. We've talked about Jesus Christ. Now, how is one saved? Peter has given us one part of the process that we will discover tonight. So, number one, if you're taking notes. Number one, how am I saved? How are we saved? How is one saved? Number one, repent. Have you ever heard of that word, repent? If you've been a part of church for any, or any church, if they're preaching the gospel, for any amount of time, most likely you've heard the word repent or repentance mentioned at least once or twice. Repent. John the Baptist came into the wilderness or came out of the wilderness preaching a message of repentance. He says in Matthew 3, 2, Matthew 3, 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is the same message the Lord Jesus Christ declared when he began in his earthly ministry. Matthew 3.17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The disciples, their message was repentance. Acts 3.19, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Paul himself preached in Acts 26.20, repent and turn to God. So if the pillars of the Christian faith preach the message of repentance, then what pattern must we follow? The pattern of the pillars of the Christian faith. And the pattern they set for us is to preach a message of repentance. Give the gospel and then call people to repentance. Amen. When the gospel is preached, the response should be, what must I do? And our response is simply, repent and turn to God. That's very, very simple. The gospel is preached. What must I do? Simple, brother. Repent and turn to God. Now, here's the thing. Have you ever shared the gospel with people? And as you're sharing, and Mark is looking at me, you probably have experienced this more than once. That you're sharing the gospel with someone, and then they want to go off into a completely different subject. They want to start talking about, well, what about, uh, what about making confession in the Catholic Church? Or what about uh, a priest? And, and you almost feel like they, they have distracted or deterred you from the direction you were going in. Bring them back. Bring them back. Tell them, that's a good question. And we'll get back to that. But let's get back to this. You need to repent. You need to turn from your sins. It's interesting that when you ask people, even if they're believers, or how they came to Christ, the most common answers that you'll get is usually, I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ into my heart, and now I'm saved. Or they'll say, I, I was in this vice, or I was in that vice, then I came to Jesus, and he cleaned me up, and now my life is so much better. And all those things may be true. And all those things may be fine and well and great. But the question I have for them is, where does repentance fit into that? Where did, the, where did repentance fit into that process of you being now cleaned up and you accepted Christ into your heart and all those other, all those other things? 
And what we do is when we don't have repentance, we have a savior who's not our Lord. When we don't repent, we have a savior who's not our Lord. And can he be your savior and not your Lord? Absolutely not. If you think that he can just be my savior, he just saved me from whatever I was into. And now I'm just living the life that I want to live. Then where does lordship fall in? Where is a continual turning from sin and turning to God? And you only do that if Jesus Christ is your Lord. Yes, he's my savior. But there must be repentance. Let me say to this, say, say this to you. There is not one place in the Bible, if you're taking notes, not one place in the Bible that even resembles anything like accepting Jesus. Not one place in the Bible will you find except Jesus. Not one place. There's not also another, uh, no other place in the Bible where you will find accept him into your heart. Not one place. And why has that become the model staple of how you are saved except Jesus Christ into your heart? And that which has been preached by the Old Testament prophet uh, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God in the flesh, and the apostles, the message they brought was repentance. The message we now have is accept them into your heart. And we've left out repentance. Is it that important? Does repentance really matter? Does it matter if we repent or not? And, and what does it mean to repent? And here's another hard question. How do I make that awkward appeal for someone to repent without offending that person that I'm sharing the gospel with? You ever been in that position where you're like, no, I've got to tell you to repent. And I, I, don't, I don't want to do that. I don't know how to do that. It's going to like kill this whole conversation, right? But Luke 13.3 says, unless you repent... You will likewise perish. You'll likewise die. If, and if you don't repent, you'll die. Acts 11.18, repentance leads to life. 2 Corinthians 7.10, repentance leads to salvation. So is repentance really that important? Yes. If you don't repent, you'll die. Repentance gives you life. Repentance produces salvation. So repentance is that important. You can't be saved unless you repent. So then, what is repentance? And I, I think we kind of have a general idea of what repentance is. But what, what does it mean? How do we do it? If you're taking notes, repentance means to turn from sin. It, it, it literally means an about face. So you're going one direction and you turn about face like a soldier who is walking in one direction and then quickly turns the other direction. Happy Veterans Day to the veterans, praise God. It's a turning away. A turning away from what? Turning away from sin. So you're turning away from sin. You make an about face from sin and you make an about face or as you're turning, what do you turn to or who do you turn to? You turn to God. We turn from a pursuit of sin to a pursuit of God. This is repentance. And only when someone is truly repenting, they will find themselves turning from sin, hating sin, abhorring sin, running from sin. That's true repentance. True repentance is now you no longer enjoy your sin. You no longer make excuses for your sin. 
You hate your sin. You abhor your sin. You, 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 you can't stand the sin that lives inside of you. That's repentance. It's not smiling at sin. It's not hiding and doing sin. It's being overly just disgusted with sin. This is what it means to repent. And I ask you, if you say that you're truly saved, do you have that kind of attitude towards sin? Do you have that kind of mentality towards sin where it disgusts you? You hate sin. You constantly know that you must turn from sin. Because if you don't have that feeling towards sin, then let me warn you that possibly, maybe, there has not been a change inside of you. When you start sharing the gospel, it is important for you to emphasize to the person that you're sharing the gospel with that repentance is biblical and is the most biblical response to the gospel that you have just delivered to them. But here's the thing. Does that mean that you lead them in a repentance prayer? Now, not that there's anything wrong with praying for that person or not that there's anything wrong with praying that God helps that person to turn from their sins and turn to God. But is there a way that when you pray for them, let's say if you did that at that moment, you know, because they prayed that they've turned from sin. There is no way. There is absolutely no way. If, and here's why I say this, because I probably have led hundreds of people in that prayer. And I'm literally saying hundreds. I mean, preaching in front of prison inmates full of 150 people at one service, 150 people at the next service, and leading them in some kind of prayer that is similar to, I repent of my sin, I ask you to come into my life and be my savior. And what happens? So many times they walk out and because they prayed some kind of prayer, they think that, that magically everything has been become okay. And me, in my prideful state, leading that prayer, think that I got about 300 people saved today. That's not the way it works. And let me encourage you, this is one of the reasons for the local church. So that if you say, I've repented and I've come to faith in Christ, one of the functions of the local church, one of the blessings of the local church is that we become so identified with one another that we begin to identify who are true believers and who are not true believers. That's been one of the, the, the responsibilities and authorities that God has entrusted to his local church so that we can weed out the good ones or weed out the, the bad ones and keep the good ones. We don't want to weed out the bad ones, or good ones. We want to keep the good ones. And there have been many people who have asked me in, in the past two years, maybe more, why don't you do altar calls? Why don't you lead people in, in prayers of repentance? For the reasons that I just shared with you. Number one, but I'll give you some reasons. Number one, there are no altar calls in the Bible. Not one. Go find it. Which is why I stopped doing it about three years ago. No altar calls in the Bible. No such thing as an altar call. Altar calls began in the 17th century. So we've been doing altar calls because of some kind of traditions that we've grown up with, but it's not really biblical. Hey, Tony, can you turn the air on? Thanks. Does that make sense? Number two, because there's no way for me to know that those who have prayed a prayer are really repentant. And I don't want to give them some kind of false hope. And I don't want to give myself some kind of false sense of achievement 
because we prayed together and now everything's okay. Do you want that for yourself? Do you want us to, to walk out and say, hey, I prayed a prayer and now I'm okay? No. And, and the same thing for me. I don't want to lead you in some kind of prayer and think, since you prayed it, you're okay. I can't tell you again how many people have fooled themselves with that prayer or because they prayed some kind of prayer. And how many times I've fooled myself leading people in that kind of prayer. You know, listen to me, guys. I'm saying this because I care about you. You know how many people I've baptized that I wish I didn't baptize? Because I've seen them later on and they were completely living in sin or I baptized them and I never saw them again. You you know how many times that I've led someone in a prayer and thought, great, they're okay now, only to find out that they're still living in sin? Willfully living in sin. Willfully enjoying sin. Because there was no true repentance there. Christ does that work. Not us. Christ does the work of repentance. And repentance is something that you begin to see in someone's life over a period of time. You begin to see that they're turning from sin. You begin to see that they're, they're hating sin. And you start to see them drawing nearer to the things of God. You start to see them drawing nearer to Bible study. You start to have conversations with them. And you can hear the work that God is doing inside of their heart just by the things that are coming out of their mouth. I can't tell you the conversations that I've had with so many of the men here. And it's evident to me that God is working inside of their heart because of the things that are coming out of their mouth that were not coming out of their mouth when I first met them. What a blessing that is. I had Pastor John intentionally read Romans chapter 10 verse 9 earlier. And for those of you who don't know it, it goes something like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How many of you have heard that before? I had a a former member attempt to grill me on this verse. This is the way that you're saved. And I said to that person, that prayer is not the way that you're saved. Number one, because Paul does not instruct this, instruct us that this is a prayer. Paul never said pray this prayer. Paul is telling us a legitimate truth that is consistent throughout Scripture. Secondly, Paul is not simply implying that someone must pray something similar to this and then they're saved and that's it. Paul is not promoting some kind of easy salvation that is accomplished by repeat after me prayer. Are you listening? The confession of the mouth is something that is known and received in your heart. So what you confess out of your mouth most likely is coming out of something that has happened inside of your heart, which is true. And if it's coming out of your mouth, it's a work that's been done inside of your life, which will result in works and actions that will be evident in what you do. And Paul is not 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 contradicting himself because he's saying all throughout the book of Romans, we're justified by faith. And if you're justified by faith then you will start living according and in obedience to the law. So you can't just say this simple prayer and say, I confessed, I believe, now I'm saved. Oh no. Oh, there's much more to that. Confess, you should. It comes hopefully from the belief in your heart. 
and it should be evident in the way that you live. But don't think that you're going to get away with, I prayed a simple prayer and now it's all good. If someone says that they believe in Christ, yet they deny Christ through trials, are they truly saved? They confess with their mouth. But did they, did they stand with him through trials? If someone confesses Christ with their mouth, but yet they give in constantly and willfully and enjoyingly to temptation, have they truly believed in their heart? If they did, they didn't stand with him through the temptation or trust him enough through the temptation. If they confess with their mouth, but they deny him by the way that they live, then they, do, they, do they truly believe in Christ? They can't. Because they are denying him by their life. This is why Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord. And his response to them is, I don't even know you. And depart from me. You who sin or you workers of lawlessness. What is he saying? You say Lord with your mouth. But your hearts are far from me. Does that make sense? So let us not be confused or even fooled by thinking that we prayed some prayer and now it's all done. No, there must be repentance. There must be repentance. There must be a turning from sin and turning to God. Let me say to you this also. Repentance does not mean that you will never, ever sin again. As a believer, it's in, it's in, it's, this is also important for you as you're sharing the gospel. It is important for you to share the gospel when you're sharing the gospel and you share repentance for you to emphasize. Now, this does not mean that you're never going to sin again. You will sin. You've got to make this point clear. And, and it, maybe it should be made clear to some of you tonight. Repenting does not necessarily mean that you will ever, that you will never sin again. As believers, we are fallen sinners. Even though God gives us a new life. We'll continue to struggle with sin until we are glorified with Christ. So what does repentance mean then for the believer? It means this. We are no longer at peace with sin. That's what it means for the believer. You are no longer at peace with sin. And here's a, here's a, a, a wonderful truth. You now declare war against sin. You now declare war against sin. And you now trust that God will help you to resist sin by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the seal that He has given you to show that you belong to Him. You trust Him through that. You trust that, yes, I will not be perfect, but I will wage war by God's help through the Holy Spirit inside of me. Wage war against sin that lives in this flesh. And that's exactly what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 7. He's describing, I'm making war against this sin. I'm making war against my flesh. I'm making war. I'm not comfortable with this sin. I'm making war against it. And at the very end, he says, I thank God through my Lord and Jesus Christ. And it's through Christ, essentially, he's saying that I have victory in this battle. So it is for you. And so it is for the person you're sharing the gospel with. Because they're going to they're gonna get saved and ultimately... Not ultimately. Nine times out of ten, they're always going to believe. Most people are going to believe. That means my life's going to be perfect now. That means everything's going to be okay now. <laughs> that means everything's going to be okay now. And that's usually not the case. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, since you have been believers, have struggled now more with sin than you did before you were a believer? 
Why? Because when you were not a believer, there was no war. The unbeliever doesn't have a war. The only believers have war. That's why there was no battle. That's why there was no struggle. That's why it was so difficult. Because before you were a believer, there was no war. You enjoyed sin. Now because the the Spirit of God is inside of you, you don't enjoy sin. Therefore, there's a war. And that's the point. And that's a great thing. You should rejoice that you are in a battle. You should rejoice that you're in a war. You should rejoice that you wake up and say, gosh, this is hard, but I'm trusting you, God, to help me through this. Praise God for that. If it was easy and there was no problem, then you should be looking at yourself in the mirror and asking, did I truly repent and turn to Christ? Because this is getting kind of easy. And you better ask yourself, why is it easy? What am I doing that's making this so easy? What am I not doing that's making this so easy? So, we must remember and continue to remember that we have to have an attitude of disgust towards sin. You see my face when I say the attitude of disgust. You just hate sin, right? And then love God. And love God. Love God. Hate sin. Not defend it and love God and pursue His holiness for your life. That's, that's what repentance looks at, like in, our, in the life of a believer. That's what repentance looks like. That's true repentance. And maybe even for you tonight, you're asking yourself, man, is that real in my life? Is that something that, that's, that's become a legitimate truth in my life? Am I secret, secretly uh, pursuing sin? Am I secretly putting out a good smiling face in front of people, but in, in private I, I am secretly pursuing sin? Brother, sister, if that is you, oh, be careful. Please be concerned. And I implore you to ask God to give you a sense of urgency concerning your sin if that is you. Next point. <laughs> Next point, how are we saved? Number one, repentance. Number two, faith in Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone. You should circle every single one of those four words if you're taking notes. Faith in Christ alone. In order for one to repent, they would have already been given faith to believe. Do you realize that if you're repenting, it's because you've already been given faith to believe? It's not a process of... First I repented and now I believe you've already been regenerated before those two processes have even happened. Because you won't repent unless God has already given you a repentant heart. And you won't believe unless God has already given you the heart and faith to believe. And what a joy that is when you begin to realize, wow, it has already taken place. Regeneration precedes repentance. He's already changed your heart. And now he's bringing you forward and you're beginning to recognize, okay, sin and yes, Christ alone. And it's all happened because he's changed your heart. Praise God for that. So for one to be saved, they must hear the gospel. Because the gospel is the means that God uses to change hearts. People will say, you don't need to preach the gospel. You just need to live your life. Where in the world does the Bible say that? Where in the world does the Bible say, live your life and people are going to be changed because of it. No. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. They're not changed by watching you be nice to people. 
They're changed by watching you. <clears throat> losing my voice. <clears throat> They're changed by watching you or by hearing the gospel come out of your mouth. That's the message. The message that changes lives. I'm going to stop yelling because my voice is giving out. <clears throat> what is faith? It is a word that has been so misused and abused that we really have no understanding of what it means anymore. Faith. I want, I want to give you guys an assignment. <clears throat> Ask someone, what is faith? Ask a believer. And just be interested or, or just listen to the, to the number of answers that you're going to get when you ask him, what is faith? And then compare it to the explanation that you're going to get tonight in just the next few minutes. Here, here it is. Faith, taken from the Greek, is a firm persuasion. Now I'm starting to whisper. Is that okay? Faith is a firm persuasion. It is complete reliance and dependence. It is rock solid, truth grounded, promise founded trust in the risen Lord Jesus to save you from your sins. That's faith. Would you like me to say it again? <clears throat> Firm persuasion. Complete reliance and dependence. A rock solid truth. Grounded, promise founded, trust in the risen Lord Jesus to save you from your sins. Now, these will be online, so don't worry about trying to get every single one of those notes. Faith is trusting not in your good works or your good deeds for your salvation to save you from God's wrath. Rather, it is knowing that your works will never be good enough. That, that, that's faith. Knowing that your works will never be good enough. Therefore, you trust in the works of someone else. The perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ, for your salvation. Knowing that he lived the perfect life that you could never live. That's faith. The perfect life that God demands could never be lived by you or me. Instead, the perfect life that God demands was perfectly lived by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we, we abandon all of our attempts to live a perfect life. And we, we thrust all of our hope, all of our trust in the perfect life that Christ lived. Why? Because we can't do it. And our trust is he did it for us. I stand, he stands, he stands in our place. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. Christ obeyed the law, the law of God perfectly. He lived perfectly. And when he gave up his life, he did so for his sheep that the father had given him. And God accepted his sacrifice by raising Christ Jesus from the dead. The Bible teaches that our greatest need is this, to be found righteous in the sight of God. That's our greatest need. I was listening to someone today <clears throat> talking about the gospel. And they said that when you come to God, one of the reasons why you come to him is so that you will be satisfied in him, be, be, be joyful in him. And that's, that's one of the great things, one of the great benefits of it. But that's not why you come to God. You come to God because you're a sinner in need of a savior. And then the result of that, or one of the benefits of that, is that you are satisfied in him. You don't come to God to be satisfied in God. You come to God because you are in need of a savior from your sins. Amen? So our greatest need is to be found righteous in the sight of God. 
But are we righteous? No. We are wicked. We are unrighteous. And when we stand before God, here's the verdict. Apart from Christ, guilty. When we stand before God, apart from Christ, here's the verdict. Guilty. Therefore, we need Christ. We need Christ. Christ takes our place so that when we stand before God, it's not us standing before God. It's the righteous one, Jesus Christ, the perfect one who stands before God in our place. He's our substitute. Therefore, when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us. He looks at Christ and he says, justified or innocent. Oh, you need Christ. You need to trust in Christ. You need to place your faith in Christ. Because if not, the only verdict that you will ever hear when you stand before God is guilty. And for those who think they have time, I swear I heard um, one of my favorite ministers, Alistair Begg, say, you have time, but you don't have that much time. You have right now, but you don't have tomorrow. So for those who you are sharing the gospel with, would you be this urgent with them? Would you be this, this serious with them? Would you be this kind? Would you be this pesky with them? Be pesky. Bother them, especially if you, if you live around them or you see them constantly. When are you going to give your life to Christ? <laughs> just tell them. When are you going to give up? Huh? When are you going to stop sinning? Just, just make them feel bad. When are you going to stop being unrighteous? When's your wickedness going to stop? <laughs> I'm only telling you because I love you. Then, then walk away. And <laughs> see what happens. <clears throat> when we place our faith in Christ, we are firmly persuaded that when we stand before God, we will be able to be rescued by our substitute who stood in our place living the holy life that we could not live and dying the death that you and I deserved. When Jesus said in John 19, 15, it is finished. We then become those who belong to him, those who we died for. In Romans 3, 22, we become the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to hear this real quick as we close Greg Gilbert in, in his book, The Gospel, which, by the way, we're going to put up as a link on our sermons because it's a free PDF file. So you'll be able to get the entire book on, on this uh, sermon. Greg, Greg, Greg Gilbert says this. You might think of it like this. When we trust Jesus to save us, we become united to him. And a magnificent exchange takes place. All, all of our sin, all of our rebellion and wickedness is imputed or credited to Jesus. And he dies because of it. And at the same time, the perfect life of Jesus is imputed to us or credited to us. And we are declared righteous God looks at us and instead of seeing our sin and if you could just get the picture of us standing before holy God one day he sees the righteousness of Christ what a blessing that is so even though now as a believer you may be struggling with sin and warring against sin you trust that when you stand before God, God will look at Christ and his righteousness, not you and your unrighteousness, even when you're a believer. And he will say to you, justified, because you will be covered in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Why would we make, again, such an emphasis on the word alone? Because there's nothing you can do inside of you or outside of you to save yourself. There is no good deed you can do. There is no other path. There is no other savior. There is no other way to salvation than in Christ alone. So we emphasize the word alone. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Sounds like he's saying sola Christus or solas Christus. Christ alone. It is important when sharing the gospel that you make it clear that the person cannot be good enough. They cannot try their best. They won't, their best will never be good enough for that moment when they stand before God, if they stand before God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our hopes, all of our future, all of our destiny, all of our trust is thrown on Christ alone. Now, how do you communicate that, that difficult word of repentance to someone? How do, you, how do you communicate placing faith in Christ alone? Nothing you can do. Here's how you communicate it. You say it like it is. And you be bold to know that you are saying God's word, not your word. If you were saying your word when you're talking about repentance and turning from sin, then you should maybe feel kind of embarrassed. You should feel maybe kind of ashamed. But it's not your word. You are pointing to you are pointing them to the only rock that can save them when the wrath of God comes. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't be ashamed of repentance. Rejoice in repentance that God could give them if they believe, should they believe, God gives them a life that they could have never dreamed of. A life that is full of a hope and a future. And in Christ, they will never be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We pray, God, that your, your saints were edified, that you were glorified. And God, we pray that you are preparing us, Lord, to take this gospel to our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers. We pray that you would give us the boldness that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit to be a witness. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.